0: This is Bonjour High, the Obladi oh Omicron oh Life Goes On edition. I'm Avi Feingold in Montreal and I'm here with Alana Zakon in Toronto and David Sklar in Calgary. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, Jewish nostalgia. Is it a central ethos to the modern practice of Judaism? We talked to Rachel Gross who thinks so. And Quebec continues to be the strangest place in Canada for the pandemic. Alana, David, have you been hearing about what's going on in, in La Belle Provence?
1: A little bit, but I'd like to hear more information if you could spread the news.
2: It's so far away from me, so please tell us what's going on.
0: Well, they announced on Wednesday that um, people, you have to be careful with this because it really goes against like the free healthcare in Canada sort of laws and stuff, but that people that aren't vaccinated are going to have some sort of a tax to pay. Um, There will be some sort of, uh, they haven't figured out exactly what it is. They haven't decided how it's going to work. You still get your medical treatment. But if you are, uh, if you have some sort of medical treatment and you have uh, COVID or you're caught with COVID and you have to go to the hospital and you are not vaccinated, there will be some sort of a um, tax assessment on top of that, some sort of a fee that you'll have to pay. Um, I love that. Is this good for the Jews? Bad so for the Jews? Y- yeah. <laughs> so you
1: can be medically exempt. Is that what you were saying?
0: You can be medically no. exempt, but that they're going to they're going to crack down on medical exemptions and, and be real. Although what that means, I have no right. idea. Um,
2: but I guess
1: some people can kind of twist it.
2: I mean, Quebec I heard- does love taxing its citizens more than any other province in this country. That is true. And giving us a lot less than what everybody,
0: nah maybe not. We do get a lot of stuff. I mean, I you get a lot of
2: stuff because of Alberta money. Let's let's just put it <laughs> oh, out okay, there. Fine. Those 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 swings in Place des Arts are, are directly related to Alberta coffers from the oil industry. I hear that.
0: Um, but I don't know, like, it's there's that. I mean, we're still on a curfew, uh, 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. Everything is still closed. Stores are still closed on Sunday. You can't even go to a grocery store on Sunday. Um you can go to pharmacies and uh, dépanneurs, right? F- which, for non Ontarians, means uh, non Quebecers
2: means corner stores. Um, it, it's you know, a little Abby, much. I, I, I'm a little done. I, I have to say. I think everyone's a little done with COVID itself, but I think this is a measure that is is necessary and needed. But it doesn't um, work. But
0: everybody but says that. that tr- tr- everybody says that that. Um, curfews don't work. I have no idea if taxes are gonna work. I know that they, the two things that happened this week is that when they announced that you needed a vaccine passport for the to go into the pot stores and to the liquor stores, and when they announced a
2: tax uh, on unvaccinated, all of a sudden first vaccine appointments like jumped. There were like 7,000 right. people who signed up for the first vax as soon as those things happened. And I think we have to be a bit punitive in this case. I I actually think we don't recognize or realize how expensive these things are, that if someone who is unvaxxed and is getting sick and then has to spend time in the ICU, the thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars that that is, I actually think for generally anytime we as citizens of Canada need a doctor or have to go to the hospital we should get a paper in the mail saying it's free this is how much it covered but this is how much it costs just so that we have a recognition of all the things that we use in our in our in our healthcare system that we know that an ambulance is $200 that we know even you know just seeing a doctor for 20 minutes is what about $150 I I don't know cuz I don't get a bill I know what my bills were like in the US I hear you uh,
1: right? David I hear you
2: I just yeah. think we, we don't have a recognition of how much things cost. And if someone is deciding not to get vaxxed, and that is their prerogative, then if they do get sick, they should be taxed on how much it's going to cost to keep our medical system intact because it is for, it is it is tearing apart right now.
0: Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree. I'm I'm totally for this this. Punitive tax or whatever we're going to call it, or however they're going to define it. I, I actually think it's not actually going to happen. I I think this is just something that he says in order to show people that he's strict about it, but he knows that there are people already, as we speak, probably planning lawsuits against it, and it's going to get caught up in you know in court, and it's never going to actually end up happening. But it'll just get him to November when he wants to get elected and show that I'm the strong guy and I'm I'm really like you know stiff on uh, COVID. Uh, I, I don't know. It's just, like, I think we're all fed up here. We're ready. When, when normal people are breaking the law and having people over, otherwise non-scoff laws, um, I, I was speaking to the Toronto Star this week. I'm going to be in the Toronto Star over the weekend. And, uh, yeah, uh, talking about COVID and... Uh,
1: Wait, why the Toronto I, so, Star? Why are I you not know, a Montreal think paper?
0: an editor knows me, put me in touch because oh. they know that the whole family got the, the Omicron variant and they're looking for ah. people around the country. Uh, anyways, when I, when I was talking to them, it was like, listen, when ordinary people who are not scofflaws, who obey the speed limits and don't do crazy things, when they're breaking the law, when they're having people over and, you know, gathering for services and, you know, do, trying to live their lives as much as they can in, in defiance of these rules, then these rules are starting to get a little silly.
1: Isn't it crazy how even <laughs> you could like eat an illegal sandwich in certain circumstances? Just find what, is s- sand- what is an illegal
2: sandwich? What is an illegal sandwich?
1: I went I went to a spa recently. It's one of those out outdoor spas, the Scandinavian yeah. spa, where you go into those baths, and uh, they had just shut down their restaurants. So um, you couldn't eat in the dining hall, but you could get it to go. So I was like, where am I going to eat this? So I went into one of those stalls, like a change room stall, closed the thing, sat. And I was like, I'm <laughs> eating an illegal sandwich.
2: <laughs> you you do need to eat when you're at those spas because you're, what, there for like eight hours of the day. <laughs> you, you need, you need you're sweating. So. <laughs> yeah, for sure. The illegal sure. sandwich. I wonder what they'll call that.
0: I mean, you're, you could still eat outdoors in Toronto. Is that it? Are people, have
2: people can, set up like...
1: You can eat on a heated patio at a restaurant, but you can not eat indoor dining, um, and you can have, I think it's five people indoors, so it's not as strict as Quebec. Are
0: there places that have set up, like, outdoor places with it heated? Yeah. Yeah?
1: I kind of decided, with these new restrictions, to use this as an opportunity to save money, and so I haven't really been looking for places to eat out or doing takeout.
0: Dry January for you, but on (laughs) the takeout side?
1: Dry takeout (laughs) January.
2: Yeah. (laughs)
0: Anyways, um, so it's a little nuts, um, but that's where we stand. And uh, we'll find out from Leiby whether it's for good for the Jews or bad for the Jews. Lady Lewin had a video that went viral. We'll talk to him a little bit later. Um, but first, Alana, um, talk to us about our sponsor. <laughs>
1: Our sponsor is Atelier Lou Bijouterie in Montreal. You can get all sorts of stuff. Um, I was just actually just looking down at this ring, which technically I did get from Eric, but it's not from the store. So I get com- comments on this a lot. It's one of those old-fashioned, like, pictures of, picture of a woman. It's a cameo? It's a cameo ring. There you go. Someone actually yes. asked me the other day um, if it was based on someone I knew. And I was like, oh, no. This is some old lady. It <laughs> looks kind of Grecian, but... um. Yeah, but I feel like this is kind of my style, and Eric does design custom-designed jewelry, so if I wanted to have a replica made of this, that that is something I could do through
0: the store. Or if you wanted just a whole bunch, he will source for you a lot of vintage or estate jewelry as well. I mean, that he has true. quite a collection of uh, older pieces that... Uh, he has picked up over over the years and uh, I'm sure if you say I want a cameo ring instantly he'll be able to send you pictures of a dozen different ones and says I'll either have those or I can get them for you.
1: Yeah, there you go.
0: It's the magic of Eric Goldberg.
1: And if you're listening to the show and you would like to get a cameo ring or a watch or something else of your choosing, you can go on atelierlu.com. That's A-T-E-L-I-E-R-L-O-U.com and use the code B-O-N-18 at checkout for 10% off your order.
0: We have a correction to make. Last week, we were announcing uh, and discussing all the members of the Order of Canada that were Jewish and we talked about the 18 members of the Order of Canada. This is an ongoing list and uh, as the week progressed, Things, you know, names pop up. And uh, we're actually up to 21 of that list are Jewish. Sorry, David, to burst your 18 high bubble. It's ruined. um, But... Um, We are um, you know, sorry for the people that we left off the list, although we didn't call anybody out by name, so it's not like we're saying who is and who isn't on the list, but we're up to 21 and it's entirely possible that there are more. Um, If you know of uh, members of the Order of Canada that we may not have mentioned or have not been mentioned on the CJN website, uh, let us know, we'd love to hear about them. What does it mean to do Jewish? In an era where traditional modes of Jewish practice are being abandoned, but tradition is hotter than ever, Rachel Gross says it's time to understand Jewish religion differently. Rachel's the author of Beyond the Synagogue, Jewish Nostalgia as Religious Practice, and she joins us today to help us understand why nostalgia is not just a thing of the past. Rachel, welcome to Bonjour Chai.
3: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: So Rachel, I want to start by acknowledging that your book is very much centered on the American landscape, and while there is lots of overlap with regards to Canada, there are profound differences. Uh, that you likely haven't studied, Uh, and so, you know, that's there, and we're not going to necessarily, you know, call you out on that or whatever it is. Uh, Nevertheless, can you start by telling us a bit about how you see nostalgia fitting into contemporary Judaism?
3: So I think about a very particular kind of nostalgia as a type of religious practice, as is the subtitle of my book. Um, I'm looking at nostalgia... Um, by Ashkenazi Jews, as you say, especially in the United States for um, Eastern European heritage and their immigration to the United States um, at the turn of the century and how that um, Ashkenazi Eastern European culture developed in the United States. I'm looking at nostalgia for that moment and for that culture and how it manifests in different um, institutional and and material forms in um, in Jewish culture in the United States. And I am making the argument that if we think about religion really broadly, if we think about American Jewish religion in particular really broadly, to include um, these nostalgic forms that we often think of as cultural, it gives us a better handle on on American Judaism and, and perhaps on Canadian Judaism as well. I'll call myself out for that as well. So I'm looking at four case studies. I'm looking at Jewish genealogists, um, historic synagogues that are used as museums in the United States, children's books and dolls, and, um, and kind of new artisanal um, Ashkenazi foodways practices.
2: So Rachel, while I was reading your book, I kind of felt like, yes, you know, I myself really have fit into this type of category as a nostalgic Jew. You know, I do feel connections. If I go to a Jewish museum, I get excited if I'm in a very Jewish place like, you know, the Lower East Side in New York. And I do feel this connection. But at the same time, I also feel while I was reading your book, it it gave me the sense of a bit of tragedy in a sense that, you know, are we then just a spent force, the Jewish community, if we're always looking at the past constantly and never really engaging with the future of what this means? So I guess what I'm, I'm asking is, is there any place in your thinking for what does it mean to move ahead in the future if we're always just focusing again and again on uh, a Jewish museum or a synagogue that is closed because there were too few Jews to attend the services?
3: Absolutely. I really appreciate that question. So I think of nostalgia as a longing for an irrevocable past. This makes me laugh as somebody trained uh, in part as a historian. Um, I'm also trained in religious studies. Um, The past is always irrevocable, like that's how time works. Um, But with nostalgia, we we are kind of Pained at the fact that the past is irrevocably past, right? We are longing for the past, um, and and we kind of wallow a bit in that longing, right? It's it's a sentimental longing for an irrevocable past. I don't think that's all bad. Um, it's I think it's very easy to criticize nostalgia, and most of the the kind of popular and even the scholarly work on nostalgia tends to criticize it, right? That um, That, in fact, that it's a it's a like a ready made emotion, that it's an emotion that somebody handed to you, right, Um, that it doesn't have a future. But I think that nostalgia actually um, helps us form community. In part, it's not the only way to form community. It's not the only way to form Jewish community, of course, um, but I think that this particular kind of nostalgia for the East, for Eastern European and Central European heritage um, allows Jews to come together around certain institutions, around certain materials, and share an emotion. Share an emotion that connects them to their their past, that connects them in their present through a shared emotion, and even helps us think about the future a bit. Think, think about what values um, Jews want to pass on to their children, to future generations that they valued in the past. So there's lots of things to criticize about nostalgia, about this particular type of nostalgia um, but I do think it can be people often think of nostalgia as reductive, right? It reduces things to an accessible narrative that's what nostalgia does for sure um, but it also, I also think of it as productive, right? It produces a shared emotion, it produces a community, it produces a connection to the past that might even help us lead into new directions
1: for the future. So my question is is nostalgia enough to sustain us? Because you're making the argument that nostalgia acts as religion for people who might not fit into the typical religious box. But if we're losing tradition in this hypothetical reality where nostalgia becomes the one form of Judaism, if we lose practices like Shabbat or Kashrut or attending a synagogue, um, what? how much longevity do we really have as a people? And I I kind of had a hard time really being convinced that a pastrami sandwich is going to be the thing that kind of maintains us. And I'm being a bit tongue-in-cheek, but that is a an example that's been brought up in the book.
3: Absolutely. So I want to clarify a couple of things that I'm doing and not doing. Um, first of all, in terms of religion, I'm engaging in an academic theoretical conversation. So um, I am part of a scholarly community in religious studies, especially in religious studies that focuses on the United States, um, that that thinks that it's really useful to theorize religion really broadly. I am not the only person doing this. Um, I, you know, this is an academic book. Folks who are not academics are welcome to read it. And when I present my work to non-academic audiences, I say, look, you can take or leave this, I don't care. Um, But I'm presenting to you a way of thinking about religion that might be useful to you.
1: Right. Is the idea more like you're seeing this happen, so it's a way of including Jews? Because I know you mentioned the, the Pew study and saying, you know, this many percentage of Jews is being lost and people are worried about assimilation. So is that your way of saying, actually, if we counted nostalgia as religion, we would not see those numbers? Or is this what you really believe is the future of Judaism? is what I'm trying to parse. So,
3: I want to clarify, sorry, I want to clarify another thing that I'm doing here. I'm doing descriptive and theoretical work. I'm not making an argument for what Jews should or should not be doing. Gotcha. I am saying for, I want to clarify two things here actually. Um, I am I'm a scholar who did ethnography, observing observing living people like anthropologists. Um, do I do it as a religious studies scholar and I say, "Look, this is happening." And the other thing I want to clarify and people, you know, people who run Jewish communities, our our Jewish community leaders in different ways can take this information um, and do with it as they choose. I am not a Jewish community leader. I am a Jewish studies scholar. Um, So this is descriptive work, I think. The other thing I want to clarify is that I I see this as a practice that happens across the board um, for Jews who um, would otherwise be differentiated into different categories. So my study, people really want to think that my book is about what we, Um, might call unaffiliated Jews, what the Pew studies have called um, Jews of no religion, what other sociologists call religious nuns, the people who check no, no religious affiliation right on sociological studies. But the fact is, my study includes Jews who identify as every denomination and no denomination. So I think if we look at things like going to historic synagogues or doing Jewish genealogy, that's a practice that is not done by all Jews, but actually cuts across all other streams of Jews and is a way that people find meaning in their lives and that's really important that's how I that's a huge part of how I define religion that it helps us find meaning as individuals, as communities, as peoples and helps us answer existential questions about who we are in the world. Um, So I think that people I I have found in my research that folks who are Orthodox Jews, folks who are other types of Jews who go to synagogue, um, who might do other kinds of things that we think of as traditional religious practices, many of them also find meaning as individuals and as parts of um, communities and as part of a broader Jewish community in engaging in these nostalgic practices. So what my work does is if we look at um, a study like the Pew studies, which have differentiated between um, Jews by religion and Jews of no religion, building on the previous studies in the United States um, that, that previously we, we used to say affiliated and unaffiliated Jews, and now these religion and no religion categories have largely um, replaced them, but they're, they're more or less the same thing. Um, I say these differentiations are actually not a good way of analyzing um, Jews, at least Jews in the United States as a whole, that there are actually some similarities and actually, we we should be thinking about religion and the ways that Jews find meaning in their lives um, beyond these kind of simplistic sociological categories.
0: So I was wondering uh, if we can play up on that a little bit more. I, you know, I actually do come from an academic background. I actually... Day one, actually, when I was at the University of Chicago in Divinity School, um, I, I I actually feel, and uh, not that it contradicts what you're saying, but I think that the past is revocable. Right, the entire work of academic studies in history is to ask ourselves: Do we understand this history properly? Are we willing to change our mind or ideas about what that history is? And I think you know, so but that's fine. I don't think that that's really you know here or there. And I think that what you're doing is um, part of your project is saying, looking at the past and saying that past is idealized to the point that we want to make it something more special than it actually may have been, right? The person in the Lower East Side wasn't thinking about himself as the, or herself as the idealized thing, right? There may have been an actual Rebecca Rubin who didn't say to herself, I'm so special that in a hundred years people are going to venerate the idea of Rebecca Rubin, right? (laughs) Um, So so in that sense, we are doing this work of, you know, changing around. Um, and And I'm okay with your definition, the way that you define it because you're not saying that I believe that this is what religion is but this is what religion can be and I've I've, you know you've spoken about in in, in your introduction um, and and in other works that you've done about what religion means for the purposes of this project Um, and I would the thing that I i'm not quite i would love for you to expand on a bit more is what are those values other than family right and history because one of the things that i find and you know david loves to talk about the fact that he hates that judaism is just tikkun olam judaism for a lot of people right that it's reduced to one value and that's the only value that we have what are the other values that we get from pj and genealogy and you know uh rebecca rubin you know american girl dolls or all of and, and delis. what is the values and the and the you know thing that gives it that sense of the sacred that sense of the special the sense of the meaning and values uh, beyond just family and ancestry and history
3: so i i think that is the primary value that that nostalgia gives us um that it helps um place people in in a sense of the world, in time and space, right? That's that's a pretty big thing. Um, I think a lot of the um, individuals that I look at in different case studies think about other kinds of values coming in, but I, I wouldn't necessarily say that nostalgia is, um, you know, gives gives us one big value beyond placing us in time and space, which is, is a pretty big deal to me, I think, um, that's like answering, the the big existential questions who am i in the world and and like what's my purpose um but i think there's a lot of other kinds of values that come in in the particular case studies that i look at and those can be really individual so genealogists um help understand you know they think about their their families they think about really discrete values actually um or or discrete characteristics they um find kind of surprising connections um, people have said I have this job and my ancestor had had that job and you know I think we're, we're both artists and I'm finding that that kind of familial connection
0: that was a fascinating thing in the book you know about how and, and one of the things that, that connected with me personally was when we were naming our kids um, it wasn't enough to just find an ancestor or a grandparent and I didn't want to just take the same names and and, and bring it forward it was like what is the values that you know ZDX Stood for, and how are we going to name our kid for the values um, that are being transmitted through history? So that really does resonate with me in that way. Um, but it wasn't just the value of history and the value of the connection. It was this person was friendly. This person, you know, loved you know beauty, whatever it might be. All these different pieces. How do we bring that down and say this is what is Judaism for my future generations? That's more of like where I'm asking is like the when when the person place situates themselves because they're eating the pastrami sandwich as a sacred practice, which can be a sacred practice if you've ever really engaged in the ritual of pastrami sandwich, right? Um, or as we say in Montreal, smoked meat, which is its own unique thing. I don't know if you've ever, uh, you've got to come to Montreal and, and deal with this. But anyways, um, the, uh, the fact is that, great, I've placed myself in time and place as a Jew. What do I do with that information? What is now beyond? I am a Jew who does X or just is it I am a Jew, period, and done.
3: Yeah, so I think again, I think that that varies according to to individuals and case studies. I think the the children's books I look at um, are. are- often more forward thinking because they're they're kind of explicitly thinking about different values, right? They might be thinking about, especially the ones distributed by PJ Library are thinking about particular rituals. They might be thinking about um, kindness and inclusivity, things like that. Um, the, the book and the doll that I look at distributed by um, American Girl, um, Rebecca Rubin, which you mentioned, has kind of those particular values. And then I also want to mention, especially because you brought up uh, Montreal smoked meat, um, the kind of artisanal delis that i'm looking at in my fourth case study in my fifth chapter um are are actually thinking really forward thinking thinking about what does it mean to have this emotional connection to the past and to a particular cuisine that has developed in the united states and, and differently in canada um and what does it mean to think about the values that that we have now As um, as contemporary people, what is the responsibility that we have um, to the earth, and what does it mean, especially for for restaurateurs and people in the restaurant business? What kind of values do they have? So they're thinking. The restaurateurs that I'm thinking about are thinking about values like sustainability and and buying local food, local produce. And I think that they think about. I mean, explicitly, they've told me they think about those kind of universal values as Jewish values. They think that, that respons- they have a certain kind of responsibility to the earth and to their communities as Jews. That doesn't mean, you know, other people might also share those values, but they say those are values we have as a Jew. And the restaurateurs that I'm looking at want to marry those values, those, those kind of contemporary values, with this connection, um, an emotional connection to the cuisine of their ancestors. And I wanted to mention this in particular because one of the delis that I look at um, is called Mile End is in New York. They have locations in um, Manhattan and Brooklyn. And they, no one, Ray um, Burnamoff,
0: good Montreal. Exactly,
3: exactly. Who um, who brought that 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 Montreal cuisine and that Ashkenazi cuisine developed in Montreal um, to New York? And they wanted to. Um, connect that that heritage, that Jewish Canadian heritage, in the United States to um, to their values um, as as restaurateurs and as as contemporary people.
2: So, Rachel, I just want I want to know that you, you admitted right now that Montreal cuisine is far superior <laughs> to New York cuisine. That that is now a breaking headline on Bonjour Chai. I, I want that to be and clear. That,
3: that is not what I said. Let <laughs> the okay. record show. Um, I so, do not tend to but, state my own opinions again. I'm like doing descriptive work here.
2: Fine. But Rachel, what I am curious about as I was reading your book, what, the people, uh, people who convert to Judaism and people who are adopted into Jewish families, where does this nostalgia fit in line for them if they are not from this direct ethnic background?
3: Absolutely. Yeah, that's such an important question. And I'll admit, it's not something that I dive into necessarily enough in the book itself. So, what I'm doing in the book is really laying out um, kind of a normative practice, right? That this, how this nostalgia, um, for Eastern and Central European heritage works in the United States. And that is that is the bulk of the work in the book, but it absolutely leaves people out. That's what normative narratives do, right? So I spent a lot of time working on how fruitful this can be, how, how it can be really useful for communities to come together with this shared narrative and shared um, emotions and it it definitely leaves people out so i think that's absolutely the dark side to this nostalgia and to the power of this nostalgia so it leaves people out who don't share this ancestry um and it also sucks them in i think it's that powerful so i think other people are have to learn this narrative right it's everywhere if you if if you're a jew in the United States, in Canada, in in a lot of places in the world, you're gonna have to learn about American and and maybe Canadian deli traditions, right? You're gonna have to learn this narrative about the Lower East Side. And to some extent, you're encouraged to make it your own, even if it's not. And I think other people's narratives get swept in. Um, For instance, I look at the Toro Synagogue in Newport, Rhode Island, even though that's a colonial um, synagogue, right? That that has a Sephardi colonial history. It's the um, it's the oldest synagogue building in the United States. Um, and I, I include it in my study because I think it's told in the same pattern that has been developed around, um, around these synagogues created by Central and Eastern Europeans at the turn of the century. Um, the other case study, the other example that I bring in is thinking about Delhi's um, some of the some of the delis that I look at, and these are folks I I will say I really respect these restaurateurs who are who are hustling, and they are doing really um you know really really powerful and thoughtful work about about their work, um and and they're you know they're primarily Ashkenazi institutions that's what that's what delis are, um and some of them are thinking about. Um, about broadening their story a little bit and bringing in other people, um, other types of Jewish history. So Saul's Deli in Berkeley, California says, we are telling a history in our deli. We are telling the story of um, Jews from Eastern Europe, and they move to to New York, and they continue going west until they hit Berkeley, California, and can't go any further. And I, I love this story because I'm I work in San Francisco now, so it makes Berkeley, California, makes um, Northern California like the center of Jewish history. And and over at Saul's, they've started to include Sephardi and Mizrahi dishes as kind of vegetarian side dishes. Um, it's you know a lot of a lot of Sephardi dishes and a lot of Mizrahi dishes can, can Middle Eastern and stuff can can lend itself to like you know a good vegetable salad, a good side dish, uh, yes. you know, and I. <laughs> I really want to be kind to the folks at SALS so who are doing like really smart and important work, um, and and thinking really deeply about how to bring the deli into into the 21st century, um, and and thinking about who's in their community. Um, but yeah, it's it's a little bit on the nose. <laughs>
2: But wasn't there sort of like um, pe- Jewish communities were talking about sort of the decline of the Jewish deli on the East Coast itself, that the fact that no one was coming to these nostalgic delis, delis anymore, that they were shutting down. So then do they need to reinvent themselves and thus move further away from nostalgia or do they really need to clasp onto this nostalgic uh, past?
3: Yeah, so I think um, people ha- were, were really concerned about the death of the deli in um, maybe the late 1990s, early 2000s, and each of my case studies is is thinking about a, um, a, a kind of development in American Jewish nostalgia that develops in a different decade, and the artisanal delis that I'm looking at really come along in the early 2000s when folks um, look at um, at at delis that were really disappearing for for a number of reasons, people just weren't interested in delis, and and I think the restaurant business kind of goes through different waves, um, and and. I, I want to say younger folks, but it's not just younger folks. But a number of restaurateurs started thinking about, hey, this heritage is re- this culinary heritage is really important to us, and wanted to again bring it together with with contemporary food trends. Um, I want to go back to Alana's really important question that I didn't fully answer um, about, you know, is this sustainable in in a different sense than than the food is, um, might be sustainable for the earth. Um, so, so, you know, is this just a culinary trend, right? Is this, is this over? Um, I have been, this book started as my dissertation. Um, so I've been working on this for, at this point, I've been studying it for about 15 years. Um, and I, you know, there, there, arguably there might have been a moment of sustainable um, artisanal delis in kind of the, the around 2010-ish um, and, and it might be over. Surprisingly, a number of these are actually still around and still thriving. Some of them have developed in different ways. A, a kind of shocking number of them are still around. Um, but to Alana's broader question about is this sustainable, so I think as a, as a scholar and um, to some extent as, as a kind of quasi-historian, as a religious historian, um, I don't care. <laughs> I'm thinking about, you know, I, I tell my students um, studying history is the study of change over time. And when we study Jews, we have to understand that we are studying Jews and Judaism changing over time. And I think that is, that is the bottom line, that Jews and Judaism change over time. So this is looking at American Jews in a particular moment, and it will change. Absolutely. Nostalgia is not nostalgia in this form is not going to continue to be a guiding factor, I believe. Right. I, I right. don't make predictions about the future, right? That's not, the scholars try not to do that. But the fact is, um, a lot of times when people ask me this question about sustainability, I don't I don't think, I don't want to put this on Alana, I don't think you're asking this, um, but a lot of times people will say, you know, unlike, how is this, you know, I'm, I'm worried about this nostalgia stuff because um, I think that remembering the holocaust and support for the state of israel in a particular way are the foundations of north american jewish community right and those seem to me to be more stable. And I will say, you know, are are you sure? Are you sure those are really stable? Because they don't look that stable to me right now. A lot of a lot of folks, um, especially younger folks, but as you know, people of all ages are are not finding their primary means of connection mm-hmm. to Jewish communities through those things. So the fact is, yeah, those are and those are actually not that old. I I love when people yeah. tell me this because, right, we're talking about things. You know, when we're talking about remembrance of the Holocaust and support for the state of Israel, we're talking about um. Form of community organization that were largely developed maybe in the late 1950s and, and really into the 60s and 70s. So those are not that old themselves. And, and you know, maybe this is, I, I would suggest that this is another way of connecting right. to Jew- Judaism and Jewish community um, that, that will also have its moment and something new will develop. And you know what? That's great. And that's OK, because Jews, especially North American Jews, are amazingly creative and resilient people. And like, I can't wait to see what they're going to do next.
0: So, um, yeah, look, it sounds wonderful. Um, I'm not so sure that we are, you know, not, I'm not a scholar, but that we don't look askance when a scholarly theory gets, you know, disproven or whatnot. I mean, I to me, the biggest example, one of the biggest lessons of the past 20 years of American Judaism is this massive repudiation, rightfully so, of people like Stephen Cohen, who, um, you know, basically their major thesis about Jewish continuity is these most anti-feminist women as breeders. We've just got to like prevent intermarriage because Jewish women are basically there as receptacles for Jewish babies, right? And and I'm okay with saying that is bad scholarship, right? I'm not saying what you're saying is bad scholarship, but I'm always still future thinking, and I know that you're being very descriptive, but what happens when, you Know, the 1619 project of the Jewish community goes and reminds people that a lot of the Ashkenormativity normativity of the first 200 years of American Jewish history is really Sephardic history right because all of the Spanish and Portuguese congregations are westernized but there's the assumption that because they look western that they are Ashkenazi is false and the idea that you know, the lower East side was this moment for for a brief amount of time, but in in reality, the richness and the flourishing and the otherness of Jews in America was you know there, um, and and so that you know that's still always playing in my mind. The other thing that that plays in my mind is you know and it's wonderful that these Delhi people are you know talking about sustainability and talking about how this artisanal Ashkenazi world is there but again what happens when Sephardi culture is going to have a moment and that's going to become the like falafel stands are going to become much bigger and more artisanal and cool and that's starting to happen by the way with Zahav Michael Solomonov and that tradition being really like emerging in North America and in America in specific and, and to be honest like I, I'm a little suspicious of those people because there's commerce involved you know, I, I read last night to my daughter who owns she's 10 and she has a Rebecca Rubin and I read to her from Pleasant Rowland, who is the founder of American Girl quoted from your book and and it says she says you know um, but most importantly these dolls give girls a sense of self and an understanding of where they came from and who they are today that is American Girl's mission uh, That that is American Girl's mission has been a project of defining Americans from its inception and and she looked at me and she goes that's just marketing right? It's just an expensive doll, right? That's what they say to get you to buy a really expensive doll. And I'm like, I don't trust, right, American Girl necessarily with my, with religion. I don't necessarily trust the artisanal deli people with religion. I don't trust PJ Library, to be honest, because to me, PJ Library is, it's birthright for babies, right? It's a way to get free Judaism into like people's minds. And there's this ulterior motive. And so like, you know, when, when, I fully agree, and I think it's a remarkable book. Don't get me wrong. I love the descriptive sociology. I love the fact that there is sacred practice that is being shown in all of this stuff. I just, I'm not sure that the capital, and and maybe that's because it's American, and America is fundamentally capitalist in nature, and as a Canadian, there's a a little bit of an icky taste in that, that I don't want that to go into my religious life. Um, But but so much of that, and then, you know, is coming together with me. And then to top it all off, all right, I start asking myself, and this to me is the question if you have to ask, answer one of these, or unless you're going to answer all of them, please. I, they all know that I have run on questions. Um, what isn't religion, right, according to this definition? How do, what are the boundary cases? How do we decide that this is not what it counts? And so when Pew decides there are Jews of religion, Jews of no religion, and non-Jews, wh- where are these cat- what's the boundary count categories for people that are not religious at all or have no religion? Because then everything can be religion, right? Southern white culture is like odious, but it can be it can be called religion because it connects people to their family and values that they yeah. consider so to be important. So there
3: was obviously quite a lot there. Um, and bef- before I get to the great question about um, is can everything be religion, um, I want to address your concern about commerce. Um, so the kind of scholar that I am. Um, I'm, I'm trained by um, lived religious studies thinking about what people do in, in real life and also material culture studies thinking about the stuff that we use in our life. That's really why I'm really grounded in I'm interested in institutions that shape our lives and I'm interested in the stuff that shapes our lives. And I think that um, actually all communities that I know of are shaped by commerce, you know, in at least the communities that we know of under under capitalism. Um, you want to think about any kind of traditional. Have you
0: seen incidentally, by the way, the uh, the Instagram ha- uh, page, the Instagram account, uh, Preachers and Sneakers? No, but I'm going to look it it's up le- immediately. Oh, my God. It is the the absolute intersection of American religion and commerce. Um yeah. yeah. It's about like re- re- really rich pastors and the very expensive sneakers that they wear on stage. So
3: we can think about um, the intersections of religion and commerce that we like and that we don't like. But I don't think we're going to escape it. Everything that we have in our traditional religious communities, however you want to define that, whatever you think about as like non-debatable religion, um, that's shaped by commerce, right? And I don't think that makes things good or bad. That the the early communities of the early Jewish communities of North America were absolutely were merchants, right? And and lots of poor folks um, as well, right? But they're they're absolutely shaped by networks of commerce. That that goes all the way back to the beginning. the the thing that I'm looking at that I think is is different today in the case studies that I'm looking at is that that commerce, um, that nostalgic commerce has been institutionalized in different forms, has been made standardized in really particular ways, and when I look at the the folks that I have studied, my interlocutors, you know, when I when I interview these restaurateurs, I find that they're they're generally maybe not everybody, but but the vast majority are are. In it, both to make a living and they're super sincere. And I think that folks who sell things can do both, right? Um, y- you can like it or not. You don't have to go to an artisanal deli. You don't have to find meaning there. But I, I think that you know, um, you know, the the Burnham-offs who founded Mile End are really thinking about a sincere connection to their family and their communal histories, and they're trying to make a living. That that to me doesn't. Um, denigrate or or lessen the religiosity of it in any way that seems to me to be honestly like with all respect kind of silly like we buy torah scrolls it's <laughs> not like so far as so are trying sure. to make a living yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure <laughs> uh, but but to go back to your your really important question about can everything be religion right if religion is meaning and how we understand ourselves in the world, can everything be religion? Well, you know, my my teacher, the, the wonderful Katherine Lofton, Katie Lofton, who's now a dean at Yale, um, she wrote her first book about Oprah as religion. And she wrote her second book, Consuming Religion, that looks at all kinds of things, parenting guides, it looks at at binge watching the Kardashians as religion, you know, and she looks at, oh my god, office furniture as religion, like the really high-quality shit. Excuse me, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. On that You're
2: allowed. <laughs> you can say shit. <laughs>
3: um, yeah, look, if it connects you to, to meaning in the world, helps place you in a kind of foundational narrative, I see no reason why not to use that word. To me, religion is like a really useful and powerful word. If you don't find it it's useful and Casper. powerful, that's fine. But like that's, that's I, I find it a
1: really useful theoretical
3: word.
0: It's very Casper turquill the uh, Who's, who's done amazing work in that field also. Anyways.
1: Um, to wrap it up, uh, we just have one really uh, quick question for you. Um, what's your nostalgia? Uh, do you have uh, a few rapid fire uh, examples that you could share with our listeners? You know, I, I don't. I will say that um, when I
3: started this project, I started it to try to understand Jews who I didn't think were like me. Um, I I didn't think about myself as a particularly particularly nostalgic person. And again, I've been working on this for like 15 years. So I was like, you know, a young grad student um, who didn't think I was nostalgic. Maybe I didn't have much to be nostalgic about yet. Um, but I grew up in a kind of, you know, some of my grandparents were kind of anti-nostalgic. They said, look, you know, we left, you know, our, our parents left Eastern Europe. We left it behind. There's, you know, these folks who are nostalgic for that world, like, they kind of of denigrated it and looked down on it. So I wanted to explore something that that didn't seem intuitive to me. And um, over time, as those of you who have done research, you know, might might know we're, we we might begin with something that's unfamiliar and then we get sucked in or like, oh, this, I really feel this, and then like eventually you might plateau. Um, so so some of these things are are things I'm drawn to. You know, I love spending time in the Eldridge Street Synagogue in Lower East Side because it's Gorgeous and like who wouldn't want to? And um, you know, I I grew up wanting American Girl dolls. I never got one until I did this research. Then then my friends actually bought me one for research. <laughs> I I will say also I think we've all begun to think about nostalgia a little bit dif- little bit differently in the pandemic. Um, and you know, I I live alone in San Francisco, and all my family is on the East Coast in in Virginia. And, um you know I've up I've, I've been pretty nostalgic um I've finally gotten to see them now but um you know for for you know a year and a half I didn't get to to see my nephew didn't get to see my family and um you know I think we've all been thinking about the comforts of home and about nostalgia a, a little bit differently as well as the dangers of nostalgia with with kind of recent political
1: events. Fair enough. very interesting. thank you
3: thank
0: you so much.
1: Thank you so much.
0: You can find links to buy Beyond the Synagogue in our show notes, where you will also find the promo code GROSS30-FM to buy the book at 30% off with free shipping directly from NYU Press. I highly doubt that the free shipping will extend to Canada, but you never know. Uh, You can find Rachel Gross on Twitter at RachelBethGross, and you can find us on Twitter at Chai. Email us at Bonjour at CJN.ca or reach out to us on our Slack channel to let us know what you thought. If you want to join our Slack channel, just send us an email at Bonjour at theCJN.ca and and we'll get you in. Last week, Lady Lewin witnessed a group of reporters from a local TV station filming outside a Jewish school and then retreating back to their van, where they proceeded to remove their masks without distancing themselves in their vehicle. His footage of this has been making the rounds on Twitter and has garnered him some attention. I spoke to Mr. Lewin this week about the footage and how the Hasidic community has dealt with both the media and restrictions in general. So, Levy, tell me a little bit about the circumstances behind uh, the filming and the video that uh, went out there on Twitter last week.
4: So what happened was that I got a WhatsApp that the media is outside my school where I grew up for till I was like 13. So I rush over there and I start looking around and I see no, no media until I realized that there is an unmarked car. So I go closer and I look in and I see there's journalists and then I see a number on the car and then I see in the back there's a producer and a a cameraman. He has like a little desk sitting and editing. I'm thinking to myself, listen up, they came to our community, obviously, because they want to have a good story, a good hit, a good hit piece, a good headline. I thought to myself, you know what? I also want to have a good story. I also want to have a good hit piece. So I go back and forth and I think to myself, what can I, what can I fabricate? And B'chashem, Hashem gave me the das on the spot and it hit me. And I realized that this guy, this journalist, which in the time I didn't know who he, who he is, sitting without a mask and his producer is sitting without a mask. So a few minutes later, he comes out of the car and I confront him. I do like what all journalists do. You scrum a person and you ask them questions. So I asked him a question, and I asked them, "How come you're you're not following the law when you're coming to the community to impose the laws on us?" Very simple question, and obviously, like the like the media, he ditched me and he didn't want to answer. It. His producer came out, and I did the same thing to his producer. And then I came home, I edited it, and I posted it on Twitter. I never in my entire life dreamt that. By the time we're talking now, we're going to have 70,000 views. And yes, here we are. That's basically the story.
0: It seems like you, um, as an individual, you don't speak on behalf of any organization. You're just somebody who's in the Hasidic community and seems disappointed um, at the way the media portrays uh, the Hasidic community.
4: Obviously, I feel portrayed when we're talking with a biased media, what is towards or against the Hasidic community in in our neighborhood. In particular, then the story changes drastically. It, it it changes it changes the whole criteria, what a good story is and what a hit piece is.
0: The, the community is having minion right now, they're having services. The schools are open, even when they're not supposed to be. Is that true? So
4: I'll answer you with one of one of the comments I got on, on my Twitter post. Mm-hmm. So one of the people wrote that one of the French by the way I are talking, 98% of my comments were positive comments. Somebody who replied to that comment. I was like this, as, as the follows. So you should obey, you should comply with um, the law. Everybody's complying and everybody should, um, you're, you're not an exception. Somebody here replied to that guy and told him, listen up, I don't understand you. If you have a problem that the Hasidic community is open and having minyan, having practices, services going on with their life, do the same. You could all do the same. It's called United Noncompliance.
0: But hold on. Twenty-two months ago, when we started this pandemic, right. was it united non-compliance or was it just Hasidic no, non-compliance? No, not true. Because Eighteen I'll months ago, what, was there united no, non-compliance second, or was there Hasidic me, non-compliance?
4: Let, let me answer you on that
0: one. Yeah,
4: twenty months ago was right after Purim, right before Pesach. Mm-hmm. I remember. I remember where they shut down all the all the schools. They shut down all the all the all the yeshivas. They shut down all the the, the, the synagogues, the but the even Tosh was closed, shut down completely.
0: Tosh is a community that's almost an enclave, like a little shtetl in northern. Exactly. So
4: they closed Montreal. everything down, and happens to be Tosh was one of the first ones to close. Not even they didn't they didn't get rec- recommendation from Health Quebec to close down. They they close everything down to be better than be better prepared than than Health Quebec. So we went into this three four months strong. Everybody was obeying. Nobody was making mignonum, The minyanim mignon even. What were on the porches and everybody was social distancing and masking. And what happened was the government was, was basically flip-flopping the whole, whole time. And they said they pushed the whole, the whole time with boundaries. Okay, if you're going to do this, then we'll give you this. If you're going to do this, we'll give you this. So the community felt like, like wait a second. Okay, fine. So now you're pushing us off till the vaccine. Okay, fine. As you know, in our community in Montreal, we're 85% vaccinated.
0: When I went in to interview people at a vaccination, a Hasidisha vaccination clinic, this was already in September, and a lot of them hadn't gotten the vaccine. And a lot of them were saying, I'm getting the vaccine, but I don't really believe in it. I'm just doing it so that I can travel. So, what's the problem with that? There's no problem with that. that. I think any reason is whatever. The whole
4: point of the vaccine vaccine had
0: been around for several months already.
4: So, who cares about that? If somebody takes the vaccine, for for, for travel and be not happy that he about, took
0: the vaccine. For sure. I'm not talking about, again, I'm not talking about slow compliance. I'm talking about the fact is that the Hasidic community was perceived to be, and I, I, in my talks with people in the Hasidic community, there was a lot of stuff that was going on that was, there was non-compliance when everybody else was complying.
4: I'm not going to justify or, or de-justify. I'm, I'm not complying and de-complying. I'm just going to ask you back a question. Mm-hmm. Um, um, And what's the problem that that the population is not complying? Explain well, it to all me. I the... me why a Hasidic, a Hasidic dude from Utramont who doesn't have social media, doesn't have internet, his kids don't, don't have internet. He got the vaccine or he didn't, regardless. He got COVID because his grandmother's, Bubba's, <laughs> Schwager's, uncle's thing had COVID and everybody got COVID and everybody eats from the same children's pot than, than from everybody. So explain me why he should be concerned when he
0: got COVID, not now, 18 That's months fine. ago. But the fact is that everybody, everybody sees what's going on Everybody else seems to be following the rules. Every all the other synagogues in Cote St. Luke and in uh in, in Dollard and all these other places, the synagogues are closed, the churches are closed except for a few of them. And so it makes sense that the the synagogues that are open or that are open illegally and you know people are, are running out of them on a Friday night, that people are going to make a media story out of that. You and I agree that if you're breaking the law, you should be proud of the fact that you're breaking the law that the to you, the whatever it is that you're doing as a religious Jew is more important than whatever the government is telling you that you're supposed to be doing. Obviously that's- And you should be proud about one, it. For, for me, 100%, okay. Perfect. For, for the community, I can't right. speak in behalf if of- If you community. are breaking the law, you should at least be proud about it. So that's good. So what I'm curious about is, is that for everything or is that just for religious services? Because uh, you know, I, I, I saw this picture and I'll ask you about it again, just as a private individual. And with this, maybe we can, you know, move on. There's a grocery store and this is not about religious services, right? And there's a grocery store that has a sign that was taken recently. And it said, you know, le magasin fermé, the store is closed. And then in Yiddish, it says on the bottom, which means what for us in Yiddish? If you could come in, you could come in from the back. You can come in from the back. Right, and so clearly there are people that want to break the law, not about religious services, but also about commerce, about business. Right? Do you think that, that that idea about expanding and saying being proud of breaking the law is about religious services, or it's just in general that you think that a lot of the regulations uh, in this in apply, particular
4: case, or an opinion, I have a question to Premier Legault, and and this is going to be my answer that I don't understand by hurting by hurting small businesses by closing them off. You're trying to build them. I don't understand that concept. So in this case, I'll pass.
0: Um, Lady Lewin, thanks so much for talking to us. I hope we can come back and uh, talk about the Hasidic community again. Your voice is uh, is an important, independent voice in the community. Our word of wisdom this week comes from Rabbi Anibal Maas of Congregation Shari Tzedek in Winnipeg, Manitoba.
5: Shabbat shalom, everyone. This is Rabbi Anibal Maas from Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. And this Shabbat is called Shabbat Shira, the Shabbat of the Song. And since the part of the week contains the Song of the Sea, the Song of Celebration, sung by the children of Israel after the crossing of the Red Sea. So we have a special Shabbat dedicated to celebrating the crossing of the Red Sea. But in reality, what is there to celebrate? Yes, they crossed the Red Sea. Yes, the Egyptians were drowned, but they still have a long journey ahead of them and no idea of what kind of challenges they will have to face. Nevertheless, the important principle here is that they celebrated a partial victory. I believe that Hashem wants us to appreciate every step of the journey, even if we haven't reached our final destination yet. Perhaps this is why this song was added by the rabbis to our daily services, to have the opportunity to remind ourselves every day the importance of appreciating the simple blessings we receive day after day to remember that no matter how far we are from our dream destination, today we are one step closer to it. Many of our dreams were put on hold during the COVID pandemic. Schools, schools, businesses are operating at a reduced capacity, and yet they're achieving amazing things even with those limitations. You know what? That's something to celebrate. We may not be at a place where we would like to be. But nevertheless, we should say like Moses, Miriam, and all the Israelites, Mi by ba'elim Hashem, who is like you, Hashem. Thank you for the
0: blessings of today. Shabbat Shalom. And now it's time for our Nachas of the Week, where we talk about things that make us feel good about being Jewish this week. Alana, what's your novice?
1: I just signed up for something that I think is kind of a fun idea. It's called Music Before Shabbat, musicbeforeshabbat.com. On the website it says, Jewish music captures the history of a civilization. Jewish music catches the nuances of the yearnings and pleasures of the human being throughout millennia. Sign up and receive one piece of Jewish music with some fun facts just before the weekend. So it's totally free. And uh, you can sign up on their website, musicbeforeshabbat.com, and get like a new piece of music to listen to every week. So this weekend is Shabbat Shira. We're going to be reading Parsha B'Shalach. Um, and so it's called Shabbat Shirah because it has the song that was sung by the people of Israel after the splitting of the Red Sea. So how appropriate to sign up to get your piece of free Shabbat music now if you would like to join me.
0: The, the, the classic one is the Az-Yashir. That's what shows up in, uh, in this week's Torah portion, right? That, that shows up in uh, the daily prayer. Um, and I'm sure there were many other songs that they were singing. They had a whole week of like Exodus to like get to the, uh, to the sea. And then when they get out, that's when they sing Az-Yashir. Um, but I'm sure there was lots of songs. Um, I don't know. You think they sang some hallelujah? They probably sang some
2: hallelujah, but not the Leonard, some Cohen, Leonard Cohen. Cohen Hallelujah. That's what I was thinking, yes.
1: <laughs> David, what's your nachah?
2: It goes to Rivka Campbell this week. Uh, she is on our sister podcast, Rivkush. Uh, last weekend, she hosted an online event entitled Building Bridges, Celebrating Diversity in Jewish Life. So I learned a lot about Rivka's experience as a Jew of color with a Jamaican background. She really delved into the history of Jews from Jamaica. About, you know, they they even obtained their full rights before any of the other Jews in the rest of the British Empire. I learned that, you know, Jamaica saved a lot of Jews uh, in the Holocaust. About her dreams to go to Israel, her experiences in Arad, Israel, and about Black Lives Matter, all from uh, Rivka's point of view. So it was really wonderful to hear hear from that. Thanks, Rivka.
0: Very cool. We'll put the link to that in the show notes. I'm sure you can still watch it. I, uh, the other thing that's coming up this week, in addition to being Shabbat Shirab, but next week, um, Sunday night and Monday, is Tu B'Shvat. And uh, Tu B'Shvat is the uh, holiday of the trees in Israel. It's the Arbor Day, Eco Day, Sustainability Day. It's the least Canadian holiday you can possibly imagine in January. But... Um, one of the things that people do do on Tu Bishvat, though, is they eat a lot of foods from Israel, um, and especially the seven species. So I want to highlight two of my secret ingredients that are my like secret weapons in the kitchen uh, that I use all the time, and that's pomegranate molasses and date syrup. Uh, as a matter of fact, date syrup, date honey, is uh, it's called silan, and it is what we refer to when we say the land is flowing with milk and honey. Um, the honey there is actually referring to date honey. Um, and I use it in everything. Uh, date honey is amazing. Pomegranate molasses, I make cocktails with it. It's such a killer ingredient. It's funny, I was thinking about that this morning, these two things that are like of the seven species in Israel, and I was like, wait, I can have, you can have liquid wheat, right? You can just have a, a glass of whiskey, and uh, liquid barley, right, is uh, is beer, right? And uh, grapes are wine, and pomegranate molasses, and date syrup, and all of... And You're all, just of, for and to all drink of oil, all week long. And, and then I got stuck on figs, and I couldn't think of any aside from like fig rock. and so that was mm-hmm. my like seventh all the way round, right? So there's some alcohol in there and some other things, but that was the liquid seven species um, that hit me, and uh, there we so go. So if I wanted
1: to get um, some ceylon or pomegranate molasses, is it easy to come by in a grocery store, or do I have to go to a specialty? So in store? The,
0: the kosher grocery stores, kosher grocery stores will almost invariably like the ones that have a nice Israeli a selection of Israeli foods will have ceylon. You, you can e- probably even find three, four different brands at any good kosher, in kosher Toronto, store in Toronto. Probably. Uh, I have a harder time finding uh, pomegranate molasses in the states there was a couple of brands that were always reliably kosher in all the grocery stores Uh, here i actually end up finding them more in the middle eastern stores Uh, and i'll even find a brand or two that has a kosher certification on it Um, and it's entirely possible it's available online but i know that i go to like adonis here and i know that they have a brand and i when I go, I'll stock up on four or five bottles because it doesn't go bad. And uh, pomegranate molasses are awesome. But yeah, check it out. And it, I'm sure it's available without certification. Just about anywhere you can get Middle Eastern foods. Um, pomegranate molasses is like a staple there.
2: Um, yeah. I think the most kosher thing I could find in my Safeway grocery store is Beasley's, Bamba, and some Montreal Is it ball cheese mix? Ba- ball oh. mix for sure is there. And some Montreal cheese bagels.
1: Oh, whoa, you have cheese bagels there in Vancouver. They're
2: they're frozen and uh, you have to heat them up. That's
1: really rare. Like people in Toronto don't know what a cheese bagel is. It's such a Montreal staple item. People are like, oh, like a bagel with a slice of cheese. I'm like, no.
2: (laughs) No, exactly. (laughs) And I used to love it. Super Montreal. I used to love it as a kid. And then I realized just how fattening it was. And I said, oh, I can't do this often.
1: It's like phyllo dough. And yeah,
2: I feel
0: like we need to do an episode all around the cheese bagel. Um, Ooh, like the
1: history of the cheese bagel?
0: It's been underrepresented in our Jewish cuisine. We
2: get on like a representative
1: from Montreal Kosher Bakery?
0: All of the above, yes. Let's talk about this further. Thank you so much for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending January 14th, Shabbat Shira. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Technical production is by Andre Goulet. Our music is by So Called. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca, find us on Twitter at bonjourchai, or join us on our Slack channel, The Frozen Chosen. I'm Avi
2: Feingold. I'm Elam Azakon. And I'm David Sklar.